Well, welcome. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, as we get started, I want to remind you guys that you're able to give online or in person here. Uh, you can give using a QR code that we have available. You can give online. You can also give to our ushers as you exit. I do want to make a note as we begin. We're beginning our Advent series this week. Uh, we are starting with this idea of Advent, and you might be wondering, what is Advent, right? It's not something that we typically have done within the life of the local church, but Advent is this season of expectant waiting and preparation. It's this time of preparing our hearts for the Christmas season, that if you're like me and you look at all the beauty and the joy that comes in the Christmas season, all the celebration and excitement all the good things that we have happening for us in the midst of this season, we need to take some time to prepare our hearts, our minds, our very souls for the birth of Jesus. You see, the birth of Jesus is so significant that it truly is good for us to prepare our hearts for celebration of his arrival. You'll get some more information later today, actually, via email, but I want to make you guys aware of this. To help prepare your heart and go through this study this year, we've actually got an Advent devotional guide that has been created for you. So you'll see this lovely printout right here. You'll get this email to you. You can print it out. We'll print it out for you here if we need to. But I want to draw your attention to this specifically because for the next four weeks, we have devotions that have been created by pastors here in North Charleston, by pastors and leaders within the Charleston Baptist Association, even Dr. Costin, the president of CSU, created a devotional for us so that we might draw closer to the Lord in this time. It is our hope and prayer that the hours that were spent on this aren't just hours we spent for giggles for pastors to write devotionals, but specifically so that you might encounter the living Word of God this Christmas season. And so if there's anything that I can encourage you to do this Christmas season— Perhaps you've never done an Advent devotion. Maybe you've not even heard of Advent. There's one thing I can ask you to do this year. Would you simply take a look at this guide? Take some time to read through it. And each day, take 10 minutes to read the devotion, read the passage that it's based on, and just wrestle with the meaning of the text. Begin to try and determine what is it that God is saying to you in this Advent season. Now, as we begin this sermon series, A Weary World Rejoices, today we're going to be talking about hope. And hope is something that, if we're honest with one another, I think hope is something that's been in short supply over the last few years. That really, if we're, if we're being completely honest and transparent with one another, the reality is that it's been a challenging year and a half for everyone. I mean, just simply put, We've seen the way the world is, is going. We've seen what's happening with our own lives. And our world is filled with challenges and difficulty. You know, just speaking personally for my family and I, it's been a hard year. You know, we're coming up on, on one year of my mother passing away just here in a few weeks. We're dealing with just general family issues and, and seeing a loved one go into sin and run rampantly towards it. And are dealing with the consequences of those things. We're seeing the pain and the difficulty that's bringing in the midst of our family life of seeing someone chase after their sinful desires. 
Now, these things, just on top of everything else that we're dealing with, that we're wrestling with in the midst of a world that is suffering and in pain, has simply left me at times asking God, is this it? Is this what Jesus came to die for? Is this broken world, is this what Jesus came for? You see, this isn't a cry of doubt, but rather it's a lament. You see, it's a cry saying that, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, this world should not be this way. If we acknowledge that you are who you say you are, this world should look different. Now, if we're trying to be honest and transparent with one another, I know that you feel this way, but I I suspect that some of you feel this same way. That it's just been a hard year. We've all felt the sting of death this year from friends, family, even just church members who have passed away. We feel the pain of conflict and sin in these same circles. We look out into the world and we see people who are broken and tired. And again, if we're honest with one another, as we look out into the world and we see this brokenness, this fatigue, this pain, we would confess that sometimes it's like looking into a mirror. That what we see in the world is what we're wrestling with within our own hearts and our own lives. And so here in the middle of this difficulty, this pressing in from all signs, what is it that we need? What is it that we need in the midst of this broken, difficult time? Well, what we need is hope. We need is hope that things can get better. We need is hope that God cares about making these things right. You see, what we want is this hope that we rest in that the God of the universe is concerned about our plight and our pain. You see, in the middle of this moment, we are not the only ones who are asking this of God. You see, we're not alone in this request. In fact, we're not even the first people in history who've asked God to do something in the midst of our pain to provide us hope. You see, today, as we look at the words of the prophet Isaiah, we're going to see a man who's confronting this coming darkness, who's proclaiming comfort and hope in the midst of darkness and oppression. See, as Pastor Brian read these verses earlier, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 40 for the first section of our time today. And as we look at this, we've got to get some context because I know as we look at the Old Testament, there's so much that's happening, so much that we don't understand there. But as we're just jumping into this section of Isaiah here in Isaiah 40, here's why it's being written. So Isaiah's writing this and he's writing about the time of exile. He's writing about when the Jewish people are going to lose their war against Babylon and be exiled. Because Babylon, when they won, when they defeated a country, they then took its people and scattered them across the empire. And so at this time, as he's writing this, he's writing about this coming exile. And he's writing about Israel and their scattering. And really, as he's writing, he's writing to a broken people. Put yourself in the mindset 
of a Jewish believer in this era. You see, as they're being led away from the city of Jerusalem, as they're being led away from the nation of Israel, they've lost everything. They've lost their home, the place where they've lived for generations. They've lost the temple, so now they feel as if they can't worship. They have no access to their God. They've lost their land, this seal, this promise of the land that God gave them, saying that this land is an evidence, is a covenant I make with you that you will always be my people. You see, anything that could connect them to God and their heritage, it's gone. If you're putting yourself in the mindset of a Jewish believer in this time, Perhaps it's not a surprise that these would be people who are bitter, who are angry, who are disappointed, who feel defeated. Perhaps even in this moment, they would even blame God for this defeat. In fact, if we look further on in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 60, Isaiah directly tells us that Israel cursed God for their defeat. Yet, in the midst of this utter brokenness and despair, God inspires Isaiah to write these words. God inspires Isaiah to write these words of comfort and hope to a broken, exiled people. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, our first point is, The Lord hears our cries and is moved. The Lord hears our cries and is moved. Look at with me at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So in the middle of this lonely, broken time, God proclaims comfort to his people. See, verse 1 uses this double imperative, this comfort, comfort. It's used in the scriptures to draw attention to something, to apply urgency. That God is trying to get his people's attention. He's trying to get them to focus on this and to pay attention to the following words. Even as we read this, we hear comfort, and we've got to recognize what Isaiah is doing here. You see, when he uses comfort throughout the entire book of Isaiah, he uses it in eight separate sections in the book of Isaiah. And each time, he gives these descriptions of God's comfort. Now, what do these moments look like? In each of these, God's comfort is associated with a great joy, with a restoration of the land, and with the redemption of his people. You see, we have gotten just two short words into this section of Scripture. And Isaiah is weaving a story together so that when the people of Israel hear these words, they will not just merely say that these are false things, that these are just words, empty words of comfort and platitudes. No, he is making clear to the people of Israel that what is happening here is that God, when he says, I'm providing comfort, not only will I meet your present needs, but I will restore you. All the promises that I made for you. He's making clear that yes, times are hard, but hope is coming. 
You see, what he says here is that his comfort is tied to this covenantal relationship he has with the people. We don't talk a lot about covenants in in this day and age, but there's something to be found here as we look into the text. Notice that he says, comfort my people, (coughs) says your God. Comfort to my people, says your God. See, he's saying your God, not a person you know, a friend or a family member or a neighbor, not any lowercase g God that you might find out there to worship. No, he's saying your God, that is the great I am, Yahweh, whom you have made a covenant with you, I will give you comfort. He says my people, he's specifically calling them his people. He's indicating there's a relationship here. The Israelites are God's people. Even though in the Old Testament we see that they've fallen away from him, they walk away from him repeatedly, God is telling them that throughout his love, nothing is going to separate them. Nothing will take them away. (coughs) It's very much an echo of Romans chapter 8, this cry that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's making very clear to his people that in this time, I will provide comfort to you. Now, what is this comfort he's providing? What is it that he's going to do for his people? Well, look at verse 2. He begins to point to four things that he's going to do. Four things he's going to do to provide comfort for his people. First, he tells them that their time of war is over. That's where he says that your warfare has ended. What he's telling them is that, Israel, you've been fighting for the past several hundred years. First against one another, then against outsiders, fighting against Assyria. By the time he's writing this, you've been fighting against Babylon. That it's been constant war for your nation. And what is happening right now? He's ended it. He's saying the present time of war is done. Not that war is done forever, but right here, right now, you have peace. Second, he's saying that their iniquity has been pardoned. Their sins are forgiven. You see, they've received forgiveness because of God's grace. See, some people in Israel in this time and in future generations would say that the exiles would earn them forgiveness. That we went and we did this and that was what allowed God to forgive us. No, God is making very clear The exile, this separation from the land, this is punishment. This is punishment for their sin. Because remember, the reality of sin is that God will always be able to forgive us of our sins, but it doesn't mean that he protects us from the consequences of our sins. And in this moment, what we see here is that the consequence of their sin is that they have to go in exile. They've strayed away, they failed, they have chosen things beyond God, and they're in exile. Yet... They're receiving forgiveness, even though they are in the midst of exile. Third, he tells us here that his people are going to receive a double portion of God's grace. (coughs) There's not anything theologically here to, to be found. It's maybe a link to something Isaiah says about a double blessing in Isaiah 61. But here's what he's making clear. That he's going to bless them in abundance. That he's going to give them a double measure of his grace and mercy. 
What he's showing them, what he's putting together for them is that in this time, do you know what's going to comfort you as you're being led into exile? The fact that your position, your right standing, you've been put in a position, you can now worship me truly. That you have been forgiven, that I'm promising you that one day I will make all things right, and that today you have renewed this covenant with me because I have chosen to renew it with you. So we just have a few short words here of comfort and peace given to the people of Israel. Now, I told you there are four things that God was doing to show his compassion. We've seen three right here. The fourth one's coming up in the next three verses. You see, the next three verses, our second point here is that the Lord will come to his people. The Lord will come to his people. We see here in verse 3 that a voice cries, and the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, he's trying to display his compassion to the people, and he's telling them that he will come to them in order to provide them comfort. So he's not just sitting on a throne saying, I'm going to make things right. No, no, no. I, the Lord, your God, Yahweh, the great I am, I am coming to you. I'm going to come to you so that we can make things right. And in verse 3, that's what he says. He is literally saying that the king is coming. We have this good news that the king is coming to his people. But this coming king requires his people to prepare themselves. You see, one commentator when I, that I read indicated that what's happening here is that this is an analogy, kind of like a royal edict. That this is a royal edict to prepare the roads because a great emperor, a mighty king is soon going to approach. You must make the ways for him. <coughs> you see, what he's doing is he's making it very clear to us is that he's coming to us in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert. That he's coming to us to meet us where we are at. See, this is the preparation that John the Baptist is going to make clear here in the New Testament. Over the next few weeks, we'll see some of the language that is found there. But what John the Baptist tells us in the New Testament is very clearly, do you know how you need to prepare your heart for the coming king? Do you know what you need to do to make a way for him, to create a royal road for him to enter in? What John the Baptist said is that you need a new heart to make ready for the king. You need a new heart that is regenerated by the Spirit, that is ready and willing to receive and welcome this coming king. See, this work of making straight in the desert, this is seeing our dead heart come alive with a love and desire for the Lord. That our dead heart is now made alive because of King Jesus. Now, verse 4 here says that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. What God is doing here is that he's telling his people, he's saying that nothing is going to thwart my desire to accomplish my purpose. Nothing is going to stop me from accomplishing my purpose. You see, we've gotten this royal edict and he's saying, I'm coming to you. I'm going to come and I'm going to make things right. And the Israelites and perhaps our natural inclination is going to sit here and go, we're in exile, God. 
I'm gone from Jerusalem. I have no access to the temple. I can't see the land. I frankly don't even know where I'm at. I've been taken somewhere into the middle of the Babylonian Empire. I couldn't even tell you how far I am from home. And you mean to tell me that you're coming to me and that nothing's going to stop you from reconciling me to you? And God's response is, yes, nothing is going to stop me. He's saying that nothing in terms of a valley or a hill will prevent me from passing to you. No uneven ground will slow me down. No rough place will cause me trouble. That there is no place on this earth that you can go that I will not pursue you to so that you might find reconciliation with me. You see, what he's talking about here, he's not talking about a literal change of the geography in the nation of Israel. He's not creating a real road here. No, he's simply making clear that when he comes, he will accomplish his purpose. So what is his purpose, right? What is the point of him coming to his people? His purpose is to bring repentance to his people. Luke 19.10 says it very clearly, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You see, he's coming to shake up the land. He's coming to shake this world with this radical idea of repentance and forgiveness. He's saying that when he comes with salvation in hand, the world will never be the same again. See, here today we sit, or stand in my case, 2,500 years after the time that Isaiah wrote this. He wrote these words about 700 B.C. 2,500 years or so from that time period. And I think we can say with confidence that Isaiah was right. The world truly hasn't been the same since Jesus came into it, has it? The world has not been the same since Jesus entered into our story. Now he's told us that he's going to come. He's told us that he's going to accomplish his purposes. Verse 5 says that, What he's going to do is he's going to show his glory. He's going to reveal the glory of Jesus to the entire world. Verse 5 literally says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in case you haven't caught it as we're looking at this, as he's writing these words, as he's putting these together in the mouth of Isaiah... He's not saying that he's coming right now to his people. He's saying good news is coming for you. You have been restored. You have been reconciled. You're going into exile. But things are going to be okay for you. Why? Because in the future, I, the Lord your God, will come in the flesh to my people. And when he comes, his glory will be on full display. You see, when Jesus is born, his glory shines so brightly around the shepherds that they're terrified. They're horrified about what's going on, and they want to just get away from this thing. And what's happening is merely an angel coming to announce the coming glory of the king. When he hangs upon the cross in absolute shame, his glory is on full display. 
See, as we look at this, we have to recognize that God is pointing his people to a coming, coming Messiah who's going to come to reconcile his people and make all things right. And he tells them with this phrase, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What he is showing them is that this is a promise, that this is a vow he is taking, that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you are here as Israelite people and you're hearing this, and you remember your Hebrew learning so thoroughly, you would recognize that this is God giving you a vow saying that upon my name, I will do this. This is God swearing and vowing upon his name saying, by my holy name, I will do this. And perhaps in this moment, if you are an Israelite hearing these words from Isaiah, you perhaps would experience some measure of comfort in recognizing that in this time, there is some hope to be had. Because God has promised that eventually as he's providing comfort, he will restore us to the land. We see that just a few years later, the Israelites have come back to the land after Babylonian exile. They've been exiled for over 70 years and they return back to the land. We see that he restores the temple, that the temple is rebuilt. Not only is it rebuilt, but Babylon pays for it to be rebuilt and provides all the materials so that it might be rebuilt. That they have their inheritance back. Not only in the midst of that do they receive these physical things, but they are blessed as a nation that is known, as a people that is known and is honored and revered in the ancient world. You see, when the Israelites leave Babylon, they are viewed as God's chosen people. Not his condemned people, not his exiled people, but his chosen people. You see, just a few short years from now, the Israelites see their hope fulfilled. Now for you and I, as we're looking at this, this causes us to... Take a moment to take a step back and just simply say, well, this is the promise that God made to his people. We see that he has said that he has been moved by our cries. We see that he said he's going to come to his people. So when's he going to come? What's he going to do when he comes? Well, that takes us to the New Testament. That takes us to our third point, that the Lord redeems his people. As we look over at the New Testament and we jump to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I see, send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see, Mark begins his gospel with writing these words. And, and when we begin reading the gospels, there's always that little prologue at the beginning, right? And we tend to glaze over that. But I want you to focus in on what's happening here because these words aren't written accidentally. You see, what's happening here is Mark is actually giving us a deep theological treatise on the coming Messiah. That he's telling us everything we need to know about this coming Messiah and what he is going to do when he arrives in just these short three verses. 
Now, what he's doing here, he's writing about this coming king. We know him as Jesus. He tells us very clearly that the coming king is Jesus. Specifically, we want to focus in on verse 1 here. Because this is where the meat of what's happening in this section of Scripture is. The language that is used here is like no other. That Mark writes so differently than the rest of the gospel writers. And what we see here is that he's providing clear evidence to a nation in Israel, to a people who are looking for our coming Messiah, that this God, this man who says he's fully God and fully man, this Jesus is the coming king. You see, there are three words here he uses in verse 1 that are incredibly important. Gospel, Christ, and Son of God. These phrases here. Now, they're incredibly crucial because they carry a great deal of theological weight for us. Now, individually, they're important words, right? Like These are things that we use in our normal, everyday vocabulary as we're talking through the Christian faith. But together, he's making a clear case for the Lord coming to redeem his people. So let's take a moment, let's look at each one of these words to really understand what's happening here. So Mark uses the word gospel here. The Greek word is euangelion. It's translated as good news here. So he's saying that it's good news that it's coming. Mark actually uses this word more than any other gospel writer, in case you're interested. That he uses the word gospel seven times in the book of Mark. That's more than any other gospel writer. Now, as we look at this, why is he using it so much? Why is he using gospel here? Why is he using it throughout the book? What is he trying to do? What is he trying to display? See, he wants the reader, he wants you and I, he wants whoever's been reading this book through the ages, he wants us to see that Jesus is bringing a new message. That Jesus is bringing something that brings hope to the broken and the tired. That Jesus coming is good news. He uses euangelion because that has connotations of good news in the spiritual sense. See, for so many people within Israel, when they heard Messiah, they thought that a great military leader was coming. Someone who would help them throw off the shackles of Roman rule. Who would lead them to be a great warrior nation who protects their borders. They think that they're getting a king, one who is like David, who is concerned with the heart of God, one who is desiring to build up his people, to build up his city nation. They think maybe they're getting a prophet, someone like Isaiah, who's going to come and proclaim all the things that God desires for them to do. And the end result is going to be that Israel will be made great again. Yet the gospel message that Jesus is bringing is not built on any of those things. It's built on things like if you lay down your life, you might gain it. That if you want to follow me, then pick up your cross and follow me. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. You see, Jesus' gospel is built on these counterintuitive things, but is ultimately pointing to, do you know what you need to gain your life? You need to give it to me. That if you want to receive redemption, if you want to receive salvation, it comes through nothing but the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No good works, no good deeds, nothing you will do will bring you any closer to God but the blood of Jesus. 
And so Mark uses this word gospel. He uses the word Christ here. So this is a Hebrew word for Messiah. He's telling very clearly to the people of Israel that the Messiah has come. He's openly calling Jesus the king that has been promised to bring comfort. You see, that coming king that was referenced back in Isaiah, he uses the very words from Isaiah later here in this section of Scripture to call people's attention to the fact, hey, that person that we were supposed to make the way straight for, he's come and his name is Jesus. The king, the great king, the mighty emperor that we were waiting for, the one who would make all things right, he's arrived and his name is Jesus. He uses this phrase, son of God. And we find this throughout the entire Bible. You know, specifically, we see it used in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. We see it used in the Old Testament to refer to people who are, who are blessed by God. These are human people who are blessed by God, who have a unique relationship with him. And here in the New Testament, we see it referred to Jesus exclusively. And it points to this unique relationship that only Jesus has with God. See, he's making very clear that this phrase, Son of God, Jesus is the literal Son of God. He's pointing to this almighty, all-powerful being who has condescended and taken on flesh. He's hinting towards this coming perfect sacrifice we see the writer in Hebrews point to. If you remember from the book of Leviticus, as we studied through that at the beginning of this year, I know you don't remember that because it was the beginning of the year and you don't take notes, so I know you don't remember it. But if you remember that, going back to the book of Leviticus, as we look at the entire sacrificial system in there, lots of different sacrifices they had to offer, right? So many different rituals, so many feasts they had to observe, so many things that they must do. Why? So that they could be found in right standing before the Lord. Mark here, by using this phrase, Son of God, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the perfect final sacrifice. He's pointing to the fact that the sacrificial system is finished and done with the perfect sacrifice. The one who will pay the debt of our sin and shame, past, present, and future, for all time, is coming. You see, verse 1 is a very strong, very clear theological statement from Mark. So he's showing that Jesus was the king that was promised who can provide comfort to his people. See, Mark is perhaps the earliest gospel writer that we find, and he's writing really after about four to 500 years of silence from God. If you look back in the Old Testament, the last recorded book we have in the Old Testament is Malachi. And that ends, and then there's this gap within history. And we see that that's about four or 500 years of just silence. And the Israelites are probably like the rest of us. They're wondering if the Messiah is ever going to arrive to sit on the throne and make things right. In that 400 years, they've lost independent rule. The Romans rule them. They now have so many obstacles to coming to the temple. Things are rough. Yet God's writing through the words of Mark, making clear to his people that after over 400 years of silence, the Lord who is involved in his people's lives 
is speaking once again. And what he is speaking is that there is hope that has come in the name of Jesus. You see, you and I, on this side of history, we don't have to wonder if the Messiah is going to arrive to make things right. You see, we know that he's arrived, and we know that he's working to make all things right once again. We know this because the glory of the Lord was on full display over 2,000 years ago. First in a cradle as an innocent child. Then on a cross as a man who could bear the weight of our sin and shame. As Ray Ortland writes, The glory of the Lord, therefore, is God himself becoming visible. God bringing his presence down to us. God displaying his beauty before us. The true answer for our deepest longings. And he, God, promises to do this for us. It is the central promise of the gospel. You see, if you're like me and you're looking out into this world, you're looking into your own heart and you're saying, God, is this what you're doing? Is there hope for us in this dark and dying world? Is there hope for us in the midst of this brokenness? Is there hope? Is there light to be found in the dark? The answer is yes. The full answer is yes, there is. And the only place this hope, this light can be found is in Jesus. See, this desire for hope is a part of just our base desires. This is our deepest longing. We desire to know that it will work out okay. We want to know that things will be fine. We want to know that it's all going to play out according to a greater plan than what we have to offer. And the greatest hope that we can receive in this life is the assurance that yes, all of that is true, but only if we trust in Jesus. No, it does not guarantee that we have an easy, gentle, peaceful life. But it does guarantee that we know how this story ends. That it ends with us in a new heaven and a new earth, with heavenly bodies, worshiping the Lord, with the saints from all generations. We know that no matter what trial or tribulation we face, whatever storm may come, we are anchored by Jesus. That no matter what may try to pull us away, we are held by these strong, nail-scarred hands of Christ. You see, that is what hope is. It's not blind optimism. It is not foolish confidence. It is assurance that the God of the universe holds you and that his plan will come to full fulfillment one day. And so today, what do I have to offer you? What do I have to offer you as a weary group of people? What I have to offer you this Advent season is hope. The hope that Jesus still rules and reigns over his world. The hope that God sits upon the throne even now. The hope that the Spirit of the Lord is moving in the midst of our lives and His people. The hope that nothing can come that will shake us from the love of Christ. 
the hope that though this year has been difficult, God's plan has not been thwarted. So what do we have? We have hope that Jesus still reigns. And so today, what I offer you is a chance to receive that hope. That perhaps you're here and you're a believer. Maybe you're not. I don't know everyone's story here. But what I do know, regardless of whether you believe in Christ or you have doubts, maybe you've run away from him, whatever your story is, that there is hope available, freely offered and given from King Jesus. And so today, how do you receive that hope? How do you access that? You cry out to God for forgiveness of your sins. That you ask God to reconcile you to him. That you ask the king of the universe to make things right. Here in the next few minutes, we'll have opportunity to do that together. As we traditionally do, we will have a time of just silent prayer for you to go to the Lord and just simply ask him to move in your life. And then I'll close us with a time of prayer of just wrestling with God, of asking him to move and to bless us. And then we'll have a time of corporate worship. We'll sing praises to the king of the universe, celebrating all that he has done and all that he will do for us. So if during this time you feel the Lord moving, the Spirit stirring something in your heart, please come speak to me. I want to hear what God is doing in your life. I want to celebrate the next steps you're taking on this journey of following Him. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we come to you, we rest in this truth that you are good. And that because you are good, we have been found worthy of your love and affection. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of any reason we have to offer, but simply because you're a good God who desires to shower his people with his love and affection. And so, Father, we're grateful for that. We're thankful for the majesty of the gospel, that you would bring comfort and hope to your people. That you would come to seek and save the lost, to reconcile us to yourself, so that we might be a part of your kingdom. Father, it's a beautiful thing that you, the God of the universe, care so deeply about broken people. Father, we simply ask you, this Advent season, would you make us more aware of what you are doing in this world? That you would use the Spirit to stir our hearts and affections for you and for those around us. 
Lord, we ask for an extra measure of hope this Advent season. Lord, would you in your kindness and generosity, would you soften our hearts to be receptive to the truth of the gospel that no matter what is thrown at us, we are anchored in you. That no matter what comes our way, we have you. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel, Lord, that when we receive forgiveness of our sins by trusting you, the beauty of the gospel is that we get you, God, and that we get to spend the rest of this life and all of eternity in communion with you. So, Father, give us hope. Lead us to repentance. Reconcile us together with you and make us alive together in Christ. Father, we are thankful for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.